0: Welcome, everybody, to episode 44 of Generation Jihad. I'm Tom Jocelyn, and I'm here with Bill Rojo once again. Bill.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: Bill and I are senior fellows at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and, of course, we've run FTD's Long War Journal. We thought we would give you yet another podcast on the Taliban in Afghanistan, but then— No, no, we're not. We're not going to do that. No, okay, Bill. We're not going to do that this week. No. We're not going to talk about, you know, how— how the, the deal with the Taliban was just bunk all along. We're Mark, gonna no, go off Tom, on, please. We're not going to go off on that for the 5 millionth time. Uh, okay. So, no, instead, we're actually going to do something a little bit different this week. Uh, we're happy to do something a little bit different this week. We have one of our colleagues with us, Varsha Kodavayor. Varsha, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Thanks for joining us, Varsha. It's a pleasure.
0: So Varsha works on a lot of different topics that Bill and I don't work on, which we were hoping was going to make for a little bit of an interesting conversation today and something a little bit different for our podcast audience. So Varsha, before we get into this, and we're going to get into your research and your writings and analysis on what's going on across the Middle East and elsewhere, um, why don't you tell, talk, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, sort of how you got interested in this line of work, what you're, what you're working on currently.
2: Sure. Well, first off, thank you again for having me here. I'm a big fan and big fan of your work, big fan of our podcast. So this really means a lot. Thank you. Um, I am a Michigander who's uh, since coming to DC, sadly become a snow baby. Uh, but I went, to the, I went to Michigan State University. I studied international relations in Arabic. And I knew this is what I wanted to do since sort of was really 9-11 that kick-started my interest in the Middle East. So I came to America in October, I think. I get the month wrong, but it was either August or October of the year 2000. Um, and then, you know, about a year into us being here, 9-11 happened. So that's like one of the earliest memories I have of, of my time in America. Um, so I, that's when, you know, terrorism, jihadism, kind of got put on my radar. Um, And I was always interested in, in uh, like world politics, and I was a news junkie, all around nerd, really. Uh, But then the definitive moment for me was the 2611 attacks that happened in Mumbai. And I can remember the moment that I discovered what was happening. I was actually volunteering at a local hospital and a fellow volunteer was like, did you hear the news? Mumbai is burning. And I was like, oh, yeah, I mean they always have something going on. I didn't realize what had happened because I was in the middle of this volunteer ship. So I came home, looked it up. And I mean, it was just, it was devastating to me. Luckily I had, I didn't have family that were affected by it or anything, but I just, you know, I'm Indian American. Now we've had this attack in America. Now we've had this attack on India. It just all felt very personal to me. So coupling my interest in world politics with these two events, I decided the Middle East is where I wanted to focus. So I went to Michigan State University in particular, because they've got a fantastic international relations program. Um, And at the time, they had a very, very good Arabic program. Also, they were part of this this program called uh, the Arabic Flagship Program, which sent people abroad to do an immersive capstone year. So I did that through MSU and went to Morocco for a full year to really work on my Arabic skills. And that is how I ended up in DC, working on really stuff at FDD.
0: So before you guys moved to Michigan, you're from, I think you told us before, you're from Southern India is where your family's from and you relocated, you're just a baby basically, eight years old then to, to Michigan. So, and you're, you're not a Wolverines fan then I take it going to Michigan State.
2: No, absolutely not. But we have a divided household, so I'm very diplomatic, very polite. My husband's a Wolverine. So it's just, you know, this, this thing that kind of we fight about it once a year and honestly now it doesn't matter that much anyway. Neither one of our teams are as stellar as they used to well, be. Well, I
0: mean that those types of the type of arrangement can work. I mean, Bill's a Philly guy, which, you know, I do, you know, secretly hold against them and I'm a New Yorker, of course, so you know there is that there is that divide on those issues, uh, which is an important one. Yeah, I don't it... Folks, yeah, I don't true. know how right. this has lasted. Right, so right back at you. Uh, but you know, the other standard? thing, the other thing though, Varsha is, you know, it's interesting because you know one of the things we're not divided on, of course, is jihadism and our our opposition to extremism across the board. And you brought up Mumbai right away, and of course, you know, Long War Journal has been banned in Pakistan for a long time, uh, in part because we, Bill in particular, but then myself also have reported on sort of the jihadi networks in Pakistan and how that relates to Indian security and Afghanistan and, and all these other related issues. And of course, the Mumbai story is one that's still sort of unfolding, I think, you know, in, in terms of, uh, you know, people not being brought to justice and, and, and sort of that, that whole situation is maddening. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting because you don't actually write a lot about the jihadi issues at all. You're more into geopolitics and the affairs of the nation states and, you know, different related issues. So what are you working on right now? What are you most interested in right now? What do you think is the most uh, important issue that you would want to talk about to our listeners that they would know that you have some thoughts on?
2: Yeah, sure. So it's uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, human rights reforms. I think we're at a very interesting time with the Saudis who are clearly signaling their intent to turn the page with the Biden administration and with, uh, I would say, honestly, bipartisan banker. But the rift is especially deep on the Democratic side and the moves that Saudi Arabia is making in order to try to course correct the Biden administration. The second thing that I'm following is of course Yemen and given all the back and forth things that we've seen, the last days of the Trump administration, we had this new policy and on the early days of the Biden administration, we have another new policy. Um, and what it actually means for this crisis that is now going into its sixth year and has been effectively stalemated for the majority of it. And the third thing that's on my radar is, are the normalization deals that are occurring between Israel and various Middle Eastern states. And I got to say, this is actually, I think, my favorite topic to cover these days, because our region, for better or for worse, there's a lot of doom and gloom news that goes on, and it can be difficult and sad to work there. So we're actually seeing the opposite of it when I look at everything that's going on with the UAE-Bahrain-Israel deals, the Morocco-Sudan deals, and hopefully whichever countries will follow their lead and and come next. It's a very positive, warm piece that's going to be built on people to people ties. And I think it will really work towards securing the region in the long run and towards stabilizing the region. So that's been a fun one to get to cover. And it's been it's been very fun to, to actually see it happen right now. I was actually in Saudi Arabia in April 2018. And I remember having some conversations with colleagues at the airport. And we were just We were just like uh, talking before we boarded the flight and I remember saying I definitely think normalization is going to happen sometime in my lifetime and I thought that was a big deal because I mean just a few years ago it seemed like nothing was going to happen and now I thought sometime in my lifetime we'll see normalization between Israel and the Gulf states happen and then someone else I was speaking to said I think we're going to see it happen within the next decade and i was like absolutely not no conditions are not ready for that and then lo and behold about two and two and a half years later we had the uab uae deal strike with israel and weeks after that the bahrain deal and now i hope we are seeing what will be a permanent domino effect play across the middle east
1: um Varsha, that, that what you just mentioned there it's so i also was a, a nerd when i was young And I remember uh, debating uh, in my teens, friends in the uh, mid-1980s, we were talking about Germany and would the United States or the West and Russia allow the reunification of Germany and would the wall fall down? And we're all kind of like, well, we think it might happen, but that's 20 or 30. And then lo and behold, within two years of that, two, three years of that conversation, you know. The walls down. Germany's reunited. The Soviet Union's collapsing. So the world is a is a very funny place, particularly at the, the geopolitical level, where things can happen at lightning speed. And I just think that's just interesting how you describe that. It brought back memories. And but of course, you're, you're referring to and I'm going to tackle your, your last issue first: the Abraham Accords. And and I, I really think that you know, look, Tom and I um were very apolitical. Um, we look at policy and 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 not politicians. We have a lot of problems with the Trump administration, but I, I'm, I'll, I'll speak myself here, Tama. I, I suspect you'll agree. I, I do think the Abraham Accords was a very, very positive and and remarkable um, effort, and the, the administration got zero credit for this. This was buried in the news cycle. I don't think people are really understand what it is and what exactly happened and the diplomatic effort that was put into this. Can you can you give us a little background on, on how did this come to be and- um, where do you think it's going to go? Do you think the Saudis are actually going to, you know, involve themselves with this? Is the Biden administration going to continue to pursue it or discard it? You tell us what you think about the Abraham.
2: Yeah, I think, I think without a doubt, the Abraham Accords are probably the biggest win of Trump's foreign policy. Um, I think they pulled off what many people had assumed was either impo- an impossibility or something that wouldn't happen for the very, very long run. Um, and so it's definitely a victory to be celebrated. The Accords, I think this, the timing of it definitely came as a surprise, but... There was an undercurrent of relations between Israel and the Gulf states that had been building for several years. So there was almost a pipeline, if we want to look at it that way, of interactions and engagement that led to the Accords and to the establishment of formal diplomatic relations, which is what the Accords represent. I would say that the... the the starting point for the Israel Gulf relationship is it was security. It began because of a shared um, apathy towards Iran of shared fears of Iranians, of Iran's destabilizing activities in the region and Iranian expansionism in the region. I say, I use the past tense and I say it was the starting point because I genuinely think that in the years since the Israel, Israel and the Gulf states have grown into a much more organic um form of cooperation with the Gulf states right now facing uh, economic headwinds as a result of an an extended era really of depressed oil prices and these countries are very reliant on their hydrocarbons revenues and they've tried to diversify for a very long period of time and I think the oil price crash of 2015 especially in the case of Saudi Arabia was definitely the breaking point that made them take reform efforts diversification efforts much more seriously. The UAE and Saudi Arabia and other Gulf states began looking towards Israel's startup nation model as something that they might be able to co-opt and and uh, deploy within their own countries so I think there was this what began as a security relationship then I think morphed into more economic cooperation not direct economic cooperation of course because we still hadn't gotten to that point yet but this realization that the Israeli economy is a regional powerhouse and that they've done a lot of things right that the Gulfies could then learn from and I think that was how we got to the Abraham Accords, this realization that Israel is going to be a permanent partner in the region. And the second realization that it can be a partner that helps the Gulf states achieve some of their own domestic and regional goals.
1: You know, for those not familiar with the Abraham Accords, what are the basics? Is This is just diplomatic recognition at the beginning, correct?
2: Yes. So the basis of this is diplomatic recognition. is the establishment of formal relations between the UAE and Bahrain, who are, I think, like the core of Abraham Accords um, countries. And then the, the name has just kind of broadened out to all countries that have since normalized with israel and um, which also includes now Morocco and sudan and i keep hearing several others are in the pipeline and, and i'm hopeful that we'll see fruition of that so it's the formal establishment of diplomatic relations it's the formal establishment of things like investment treaties trade treaties overflight rates direct flights visas people-to-people cooperation uh, student exchanges science and technology cooperation it's really the whole gamut of bilateral relations and these kinds countries went from having nothing that was publicly visible to now putting in the groundwork necessary for everything that will be publicly visible um, and just answer one of your earlier questions too, is Saudi going to follow. I do think that Saudi Arabia will eventually follow. To me, the GCC countries, the two GCC countries that might be the most intractable towards recognizing Israel publicly are Kuwait. Um, given the history of pro Palestinian sentiment that they had there and their very vocal and combative parliament, and Qatar, given Qatar's cooperation with the Palestinians. Saudi Arabia, I think, has definitely identified that it is in its interest to cooperate with Israel, like the UAE pre Abraham Accords. The Saudis themselves had lots of covert outreach to Israel. And in the case of Mohammed bin Salman and his very ambitious technology uh, diversification and reform plans. He's made no secret of the fact that he thinks Israeli investors' expertise and know-how can play a role in Saudi Arabia's tech, uh, in Saudi Arabia's tech ambitions. The thing that I think is the biggest constraint to Saudi Arabia normalizing right now is there's almost a division in in its leadership between the old guard and the new guard. So you've got the new guard represented by Salman. And then you've got the old guard represented by King Salman. Interestingly enough, King Salman's nickname when he was governor of Riyadh was the Palestinian ambassador in Riyadh. So this is a man who's got decades of, um, of reputation. He's really built a lot of political capital around being a staunch defender of the Palestinians. And we've seen from press reportings that uh, King Salman hasn't been happy with what has happened with the Abraham Accords. But at the same time, that hasn't stopped the decision makers in Saudi Arabia from tacitly encouraging this, and I think the most obvious visible sign of this testing encouragement was Bahrain normalizing, just given Bahrain's history um, and linkages, very close linkages with Saudi Arabia, and also Bahrain's role as the, the bellwether of countries in the Gulf. Sometimes Bahrain makes the first move almost to test the waters and see what the reaction will be like, and then Saudi Arabia will use that to gauge its own response. So we will eventually see Saudi Arabia normalize, I think. It's just going to be a matter of time, and it's I think, ultimately going to come down to um, a leadership change. And so that leads
1: to, you know, you you hit on the Palestinian issue, and this is probably, to me, the most um, fantastic or interesting parts, I think and interesting is probably the better word, of this. And, how, yeah, how does this impact the, um, the Israeli-Palestinian issue? Do you think that this will make it more or less likely that a settlement can be reached— uh, I know the issue of the, you know, one of the things the Israelis wanting formal recognition, diplomatic recognition from, from countries, and they wouldn't do this partially because of, you know, internal issues, partially because of the Palestinian issue. So does this mean that the, the Palestinian issue for some uh, Muslim countries is sort of falling, or Middle Eastern countries is falling to the wayside, or is this just a, a new evolution in the way business is done in the Middle East?
2: I don't think it's falling to the wayside so much as I think it's taking on a different importance. I think what we're seeing right now are a lot of the Gulf and Middle Eastern states starting to put their own national security interests and economic interests ahead of this m- more regional pan-Arab issue. I think the Palestinians have- Don't tell helped- John Kerry
0: that, by the uh, way, so.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure he'd agree vehemently, no, <laughs> uh, disagree vehemently, I mean, um, I think that to, that, the, that the Palestinians have held regional integration hostage for several yes. decades. There's no doubt that they've been rejectionist and obstructionist. And unfortunately, they've also had the, um, they've had external benefactors like Turkey and Qatar, which have encouraged their rejectionism and their obstructionism. And this really held regional progress, um, this really ground regional progress to a halt. I think what we're seeing now is the realization among several states that, the Palestinian issue is still important. It's still an emotive one within the Arab street, and I think it's in every region, uh, every state's interest in the region to have a just um, to have this issue figured out, and, so, and, and, and in order to contribute towards long-term security. But I think there's this realization that they cannot continue to hold regional progress hostage because there's, as I meant, as I said earlier with my comments on the economy, there's. Benefits to be gained for these countries from normalizing with Israel. So I think that's what we've we've really seen um, shift is this prioritization of national and domestic interests above sort of this regional pan-Arab approach that guided policy for so many decades. And I would say it's pretty significant what we saw with the Abraham Accords, not just, you know, establishment of diplomatic relations, the exchange of ambassadors, which right there is a sea change, yeah, but exactly. What I think this will really contribute to is a generational sea change, a societal sea change, and this is because of the Gulf country's unique role, especially the UAE's unique role as a regional hub for business. This, the UAE brings together um, people from all countries, uh, you know, huge Uh, expat populations live there from South Asia, from other countries in the Arab world. It's a logistics hub, it's a hub for business, tourism, transportation, all these things. So now you've got Israelis who will be able to come and interact with Syrians, with Palestinians, with, you know, uh, well now, or I guess in future Qataris, once the UAE and Qatar finally resolve, the last aspects of the lingering Gulf stat, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, etc. You've got Israelis coming to interact with all these different people whose countries have hostile, if any, relations with Israel. So it sows the seeds for a generational and societal sea change where people can finally interact as people removed from the propaganda and the mutual recriminations of their governments. And I think that's going to spark this this societal sea change, sorry to overuse this phrase that, Uh, we'll really start to see playing out within the next generation. It's it's almost like in order to normalize Israel, you have to normalize Israelis, right? And I think that's what we're going to see happen with the people-to-people linkages that are a core function of the Abraham Accords too. And I want to emphasize that because that to me is really what sets these apart from Israel's treaties with Egypt and with, um, excuse me, with Jordan. Obviously those are historical benchmarks, um, unassailable benchmarks. I mean, without them, it's arguable that we would never have seen the Abraham Accords even happen, but those kind of stalled and have settled into a cold peace that don't take off, they haven't taken off the ground besides security cooperation and then some tepid economic cooperation. And in the UAE, especially you you saw from the very early days Emirati leaders' willingness and public commitments to make this a warm peace, to make the core of the Abraham Accords really focused on that people-to-people engagement. So,
1: you know, and one last question here, Tom, and then I'll, I'll give you the floor. The, you know, I, you mentioned, you know, the, you know, the Palestinian issue is Palestinian issue is, you know, an emotive one, and, and I would agree to an extent, but I think we saw early in the uh, Trump administration when he put the the uh, uh, the embassy. In um, Jerusalem, you know, and the the warning about this for years was, this would cause you know mass rioting and war and all of this, and there was nary a peep for 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 doing this, and I think that this kind of set the stage for what we saw for the for the Abraham's Accord. I think once the countries, it's almost like a simple thing of moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and then saying, well, you know, maybe the Arab street isn't as upset about this issue it almost opened the door I'm not going to give full full credit for that but I think we saw that you know that these that the countries didn't object didn't you know they, they didn't go berserk like people had thought and I you know it's just a theory of mine I just wondering what you thought about that
2: no, I think you're absolutely right. Also, great phrase. I'd kind of forgotten about Naria peep. So thank you for re that and making oh, yeah, this hey. more at the front of my mind. Um, I think <laughs> you're absolutely right. It's like I was saying earlier, these countries are starting to focus more on their own national yeah. interests. And we're seeing that reflected in the population, too. You've got a huge youth bulge throughout the Gulf. I mean, I think the off-sided statistic is something like, 80 percent, 70 percent of Saudis are under the age of 30, 35, something like that. This is a new generation. This is a generation that cares more about jobs and economic security and the ability to live stable lives, the ability to have families, to raise families and security and prosperity. These are things that they can't take for granted the way their parents did because of the fundamental um, differences in the economic situation that their parents had where they could expect public sector employment, cradle to grave benefits. And the millennials of the Gulf, just like millennials everywhere, I guess, are realizing that the world that they'll inherit, the economic conditions they'll live in, are going to be very different from what their parents faced. And so they're putting their own Security and interests ahead of this more pan-Arab cause, and again, that's not to say that they don't care about the Palestinians. That's not to say that the Palestinian issue, like you just said, is not an emotive one within the Arab street. But I think the level of anger and fury uh, that would have been that would have met any outreach to Israel ten years ago, twenty years yeah. ago, is very different than what's going on now.
0: We're here with our uh, colleague Varsha Kodavayur. We're talking about. Uh, geopolitics in the Middle East, a little bit of a break from our usual uh, complaining about uh, different issues from Bill and myself. So uh, this is an interesting conversation. Farsha, I've got a few follow follow-on questions for you, including one of the things I saw, and I know you spent time uh, studying Arabic in Morocco, so I thought you maybe have some insight on this. One of the criticisms of the Abraham Accords I saw some of the Trump administration critics levy was that as part of the deal with Morocco, President Trump uh, formally recognized Morocco's annexation of the Western Sahara. I uh, was wondering if you had any sort of insight into that. That's not a legal issue that I'm briefed up on at all. So when I, th- when, I when I throw this question out there, I'm literally throwing this question out there. I have no uh, opinion on it. I was wondering what you're if you had any insight into it.
2: Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I'll preface by saying I am no legal expert either. So <laughs> this is a layman's interpretation. This is um, a nice
0: lawyer-free zone, so don't worry. Yes. About it.
2: Thank you. Thank you. I'm married to a lawyer, so it gets tiring. Um,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think you can still win some arguments there, though. I think. Um, Danielle, cut cut that bit and
1: send it (laughs) to Varsha's husband, please. Yeah.
2: He'll love it. no, so, so the international, the, the recognitions or the U.S. recognition of the Western Sahara, it, it was met with criticism. Yes. Um, and I think there is justification for the criticism, too. I don't I don't want to say that it was blanket good or blanket bad. That being said, it was very obvious that Morocco's only asked. Really, the only thing incentive—the only incentive that would get Morocco to normalize with Israel—would have been a recognition of its sovereignty over the Western Sahara. I think Morocco was in a pretty good place. I mean, we know that Morocco—it's um, is different than other Arab countries in terms of how it, it views uh, its own Jews. And we have, you know, this history of Moroccan Jews in Israel, obviously, or, or Mor- Jews of Moroccan origin in Israel, playing a very proactive role within Israeli society and sort of helping to facilitate that. Um, uh helping to facilitate positive relations and 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 public recognition of Israel and Morocco and just like the gulf states Morocco too had its own sort of under the table outreach to Israel and it was it was very happy with that i think Morocco could have sustained that status quo almost indefinitely and i think the only incentive that could have gotten them to take that step of taking relations above the table was the the recognition of the western sahara obviously that conflict is It's problematic. It's been going on for decades. But that being said, I do want to pay attention to the role Morocco has played, the proactive, helpful role Morocco has played in the Western Sahara. They have invested in the Western Sahara. They've actually done more to develop the Western Sahara than Algeria or any of the other belligerents in the conflict. So I think that is worth noting.
0: That's good. Uh, Now, you spent a year in Morocco. This is one of those places I haven't visited. I've been to a lot of places, but I haven't been to Morocco yet. Uh, you know, I'm kind of jealous actually, uh, hearing you talk about it. Um, let me ask you a little bit about your time in Morocco. Where, what were you sort of most, uh, I don't know, impressed by, or would, would you, would you find the most interesting about Morocco and Moroccan history?
2: Oh, my gosh. Do you have an extra four hours? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, it's our podcast. So we can go as long as we want. You know, like, <laughs> it sounds
1: like we're going to have to launch a, a long order a generation jihad travel podcast.
2: Yes, yes. Yeah. So Morocco, number one of your list. No, Morocco is is amazing. I think I had probably the best year of my life there. It's a beautiful country, beautiful people. The people were just so warm and welcoming. And, you know, there's this joke when Americans go abroad, don't say you're American, say you're Canadian. You don't have to run into any of that. But Morocco. I lived in Meknes, which is about 30 minutes west of Fez, um, and it's located in Morocco's breadbasket. So we were near just like some stunning landscapes and agricultural vistas, and of course, like the heart of olive oil country. So every meal was absolutely delicious. Uh, I had the privilege of staying with the host family my, my whole year there, And we are so we're still very close. Like we just we were just WhatsApping yesterday. So we send each other uh, WhatsApp notes all the time and we still stay in touch. It's a great way to continue practicing my Arabic. But going back to just the warmth of of people to people ties there. The interesting thing about McNess is Morocco, you may have heard this before, was the first country to officially recognize the United States independence. And it happened in Meknes because it was the seat of government at that time. And that's something that the Meknesis were very proud about and very happy to share. And and, um, something else, too, that I want to note is, uh, so I haven't gotten the chance to travel as extensively in the Arab world as I would have liked, but I'm Indian, Southern Indian, and... Growing up in India, it was, I still have this to this day, we've got family members whose families are in India, but then the head of household will go work in the Gulf and send remittances back. And in part, they don't relocate with their families to the Gulf because it's its impossible to integrate into the Gulf. Only now did the UAE launch uh, residency and citizenship pathways. And even then, it's sort of limited to a very narrow pool of, of um expats. So I sort of had this idea that their world was somewhere where Indians went to work and make money and then go back to their home countries. And it's not the sort of place where you might be able to put down roots or have these cultural exchanges. I just kind of had this Um, you know, now, of course, uh, narrow minded view that it was maybe not an overly welcoming place for someone of Indian origin. And that's too, because going back to the Gulf, we've got a lot of Indians, South, you know, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, other South Asians who work in like the lower, tier sectors of the economy and are subject to horrific conditions, labor camps, withholding of passports, outright human trafficking in some cases. So these are like the horror stories I'd read. And so I was kind of nervous to go to Morocco because I was like, I mean, I don't look American. You know, I am American, but I look American. So I was really worried going with a group of 20 something Americans, how would I be treated versus them? So I got to Morocco, and I realized the majority of um, Moroccan taxi drivers that I interacted with spoke better Hindi than I did. I spoke, I, you know, I speak about two to three words in Hindi, and it was because of India's soft power in the region, which I, it's not something I'd ever quite studied. And it was actually my time in Morocco that made me more interested in this they loved Bollywood and they were so excited to meet me because they were just like, who are your favorite Bollywood actors? Are you part of the new generation or do you still think like Amitabh Bachchan is, you know, the old school, good stuff. And there were genuinely Moroccans that I'd met who had taught themselves Hindi just from watching Bollywood movies. And so, um, everywhere I went, I was afraid, you know, they'd be like, Oh, how are they going to treat me? But no, everywhere I went, they were like, welcome. Which was just so, so happy. I think that, that I, that, um, they had this love for India and for Bollywood culture that just kind of took me by surprise and uh so as a result I really really enjoyed my time there had my eyes opened to Indian soft power in the Middle East in ways I'd never imagined um and then uh I would also say the 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 one like defining moment to me of my time in Morocco in terms of my Arabic skills was like I just said they realized I was Indian very quickly, right? And like, they could spot that I was Indian right away. And I remember this time, about two months before we were due to leave the program, I got in a taxi, and I waited for him to ask if I was Indian, and he didn't. He was like, are you Syrian? Are you Lebanese? And that's when I was like, yes, I've made it with my Arabic. Like, he obviously could tell I'm not Moroccan, but he thinks I'm Lebanese. So that was my like, yes, I've made it with my language moments. And, you know, fortunately, those. It's gone downhill since then, hence me constantly WhatsApping my host mom still to try to get some WhatsApp lessons on Arabic. But Morocco is just always going to have a very, very close place to my heart. Sorry for that long answer. Like I said, I could go on for about four hours about just how beautiful Morocco is. And I would say if you haven't been, please do check out the Southern Atlantic. I think Morocco has got some of the most beautiful beaches I've ever seen. Its South Atlantic coastline is gorgeous. Essaouira, Agadir, excellent windsurfing and Great beach time in general.
0: Well, I'll say two things when we move back on to substance. One, I think you do look American. I think the beauty of American. I,
1: I was thinking the same exact Yeah, there is
0: no American look. That's the beauty of America. Yeah, so yeah. I couldn't agree yeah, more. Yeah. You read my mind. This as American as anybody else. And the other thing is, uh, two, we don't take any foreign government money, either at FDD or at the podcast or at Long War Journal. But I'm thinking after listening to you sing the virtues of visiting Morocco, that maybe we should get on the horn with the Moroccan government and get their travel ministry or whatever to pay us some dues, pay us some, maybe they could sponsor this podcast here. I don't know. Uh, That's how How I was thinking, you
1: know, know, maybe we need to record a couple episodes in Southern Morocco. I don't know. I think it just has to happen.
0: Barsha Morocco. I mean, you gave, you gave a very, you know, I don't think you could have rehearsed a better sort of advertisement for Morocco or visiting Morocco than what you just gave actually. So, you know, that was, that was a very impromptu uh, heartfelt sort of endorsement of visiting Morocco. And hopefully, hopefully I'll get there someday. I know that. Now listen on on the list you gave us, you had two other issues that you were talking about. Um, well, let's cut, let's check both of them off. Let's talk about them a little bit because you have you have uh, you've done research on both of them as well. One of which is the the designation of the Houthis in Yemen, and then the revocation of the the designation by the Biden administration. So this was one of those parting moves by the Trump administration. Late in the administration, it was part of Secretary of State Mike Pompeo's push against Iran was to basically. You know, if you think about it in Godfather terms, he was trying to settle all family business on the way out the door. Uh, you know, in terms of designations, basically, and uh, so he he uh, designated the Houthis at sort of the last minute, and then the the Biden administration comes in and announces that they're going to review and then ultimately revoke uh, the designation. Um, give us some, give us your analysis of that whole situation. What what your thoughts are on it? I know you you don't you're not one of those people. Bill and I, in the past, have dealt with people who claim that the Houthis aren't really in the Iran camp. Of course, that's not true. There's plenty of evidence showing that's true. But you had a—I know—you've had a different take on this. So why don't you you give our audience a little bit of your your thinking and analysis on on this?
2: Sure. Yeah, I completely agree about your sense that the Houthis are in the Iran camp. I would actually say that, in terms of assessing whether there's basis for designation, there's no doubt in my mind that there's the basis for designation. Um, So the question to me was never: Is there is this designation valid? Is this designation deserved? I think it was more about the way the policy was applied um, towards the last days of the Trump administration. And it did seem to me when the policy was applied that it was an attempt by the outgoing administration to try to constrain some of the incoming administration's policy choices. So there's an argument to be said that the timing of it was done in bad faith, I don't think there's any argument that the that the designation itself is not deserved though. The biggest issue surrounding the designation to me is how does this affect Yemen's humanitarian situation? Because the unfortunate reality on the ground is the Houthis control territory in Yemen that houses 80% of Yemen's population. And this is a country that suffered cholera. So they had an epidemic even before we had the pandemic come in. They suffered broken infrastructure. They suffered inadequate food supplies. So this is a this is a very strained humanitarian situation on the ground even before the designation uh, was announced. And so the biggest question to me was how is this going to affect the delivery of humanitarian aid in Yemen? The Houthis controlled the majority of um, uh, the Houthis control areas of the majority of Yemenis live, which means aid groups had no choice but to work with and transact with the Houthis in order to get aid out. That said, the Houthis are also complicit in horrific crimes, which include stealing food aid intended for starving Yemenis, taxing food aid, who, um, using child soldiers, using Yemenis as human shields. They've acted in very bad faith terms with their fellow Yemenis. So I think that was the really hard needle um the the, the really delicate balance that uh, the new administration had to thread inheriting this policy is how would this affect the situation on the ground in terms of humanitarian aid for Yemenis and at the same time how does this affect US leverage too right as we saw when they announced the desi- when the Trump administration announced it was designating the Houthis the Houthis launched attacks When the Biden administration said they're delisting the Houthis, the Houthis launched attacks. So there's both a randomization and a strategic element to Houthi attacks. They're in a very good position, unfortunately, in the sense they've actually gained territory now than in 2014, 2015, when the war began. And there's just little incentive for them to stop fighting. So did the designation significantly affect U.S. leverage? I think there was the argument to be made that it could have, that it could have maybe over time led to some more pain for Houthi leaders. Uh, but I think there was also that counter argument that, that whatever pain it could have put on Houthi leadership might be dwarfed by the pain it would put on already suffering Yemeni civilians. So it was a very delicate situation. But that said, I think the, um, the delisting it's um, it's going to certainly complicate the situation. It's going to make the Biden administration search a little bit harder for whatever leverage is left that they could deploy in order to get the Houthis to the table. I think that the Biden administration's announcements over the last couple of weeks, like ending US support for the war in Yemen, a lot of that didn't have that much meat to it. The biggest, um, no, the, the biggest thing of, it, of impact from those announcements was that they would be stopping uh, a couple of munitions packages to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. But I think the bulk of any U.S. offensive support had already been halted by 2018. So this would affect some logistical cooperation, perhaps, and some intelligence and information sharing. But at the end of the day, was we had already, I think, exited that arena kind of broadly. So this is an attempt, I think, by the administration to revive diplomatic negotiations. It is at least doing things a little bit differently than what's been done the last couple of years in a bid to try to get everyone to the table. This is the start of a process. This is not the end of one. So this is the start of the administration trying to inject some vigor and rejuvenated strength into the peace talks. And this will be the beginning of diplomatic negotiations, which will then eventually lead to, hopefully, the beginning of negotiations over a political settlement. So we're still a very long, way, long ways away, I think, from seeing some sort of solution that could, or political settlement that would be agreeable to all parties in the war. That would definitely, that would get the fighting to definitely stop for good, rather than these temporary unilateral ceasefires that are violated in one way or the other.
1: And um, just so everyone understands, so we're recording today, it's February 16th. The Biden administration uh, officially revoked the designation of Ansarullah, which is more commonly known as the Houthis. Um, And the same day, the State Department issues a press release um, and it's titled, The Houthis Must Cease the Assault on Marib. That's what Varsh is referring to. So the same day, the US is rewarded for lifting the designations with a, an offensive on a, a central Yemeni province, and and you know this is to to me Varsha, I, you know I always, I like to call a spade a spade. Uh, the, are the Houthis a designate? Are they a terrorist organization, or are they not? They've launched ballistic missile missiles against surrounding countries. They've used uh, you know they've bombed boats in in the um, uh, in the neighboring uh, in international shipping lanes, and you know a, a whole host of you know you had mentioned the human rights violations. The U.S. is um, what it has essentially done here, in my opinion. It's surrendered its leverage, you know, um, and hope that brings the the Houthis to the table. Now, God forgive me here. I'm gonna, you know, this sounds a lot about like what's going on in Afghanistan. The U.S. agrees. Oh man, listen, to, I had the
0: same thought, Bill. I knew we could. This this, right? this is a whole other. We're, yeah, we're, it's the same sort of servile diplomacy, you know. It's, it's it is. Let's yeah, let's I mean.
1: let's remove all the leverage we have from the table and then say, hey, we can negotiate an agreement. I mean, Iran isn't stopping its support for the Houthis. Iran isn't stopping weapons uh, uh, shipments and, you know, all of these things. And yet, so, I mean, that's why our, to me, the the removal that, you know, we're operating in different um, spheres here. We're dealing with an organization, the Houthis, that, that value power and, uh, you know, and the military power, political power, dominance on the battlefield and and the u s. is saying, "Let's play nice, let's be diplomatic, and you will come to the table. It's I don't see how this hell any of these actions lead to a peace settlement. That's just my opinion. But I do certainly understand yours. The humanitarian issue. You know the humanitarian issue was a humanitarian issue prior to the designation. It wasn't getting any better or any worse. I'm not sure. So you know, I'm the guy arguing for the, I get it for the, for the uh, designation to stay in place. They're not, but um, you know, as Tom said, I, I think it, you put it per, per uh, perfectly. A servile diplomacy, I to me doesn't lead to a, a, a positive outcome. It just leads to negative outcomes. Okay.
2: Yeah, I would say the one thing that the Biden administration can really work on is rising Saudi war wariness itself. And I think that the moves over the last couple of weeks are intended to harness the momentum that we see in Riyadh. They are desperate to get out of this war, too. I don't think that they want to be in the conflict any longer. So it does seem like this confluence of U.S. desire to find a settlement, Saudi desire to get out of the war. Let's put it together and see what can happen. But I share your concerns that. You had the humanitarian issue that was pre-existing to the designation, and now we have delisted them. So does that mean we have squandered our leverage? I I completely understand what you're saying, where you're coming from.
0: Well, you know, the other thing that uh, triggered Afghanistan for me in your talk there, Varsha, uh, your summary was that the violation of the unilateral ceasefire, uh, you know, because that's an old Afghan trick. You know, the (laughs) Afghan government backed by the U.S. would declare a ceasefire and the Taliban would say, yeah, sure, and uh, keep on fighting. So same, it's the same sort I, I think that basically bill and I come from uh, have a very jaded perspective from following these bad actors for years that they only understand power politics and power diplomacy and the idea that you're gonna go in and make concessions in advance and then expect to get a good deal that doesn't work in normal business relations uh, you know as a New Yorker you know who used to work in the business world you know I would definitely like to negotiate against a lot of these people who are involved in the diplomacy you know uh, but it certainly doesn't work when it comes to actors like like the Houthis or the Taliban or something like that. You know, now, now it doesn't mean that there isn't a lot to criticize when it comes to the Saudi campaign in Yemen. Of course, um, that's a big uh, deal in Washington. It's mainly from progressive circles have basically been criticizing the Saudi bombing campaign in in Yemen. I don't I don't think the Saudi campaign is sustainable, obviously, because it's just it's not accomplishing any political objective. Um, and th- there's all sorts of problems with it. And I know that the, the back, going back to the, to the Obama administration, there were attempts to sort of rein in the uh, bombing campaign and, and make it more targeted and prevent civilian casualties. But let's transition um, to one of the other points on your list there, which is the human rights reforms in Saudi Arabia. Um, now, there was a big campaign... Uh, Bill I don't know if you you, you got to remember this there's a big campaign to sell in Washington and elsewhere even though we're not in Washington there's was a big campaign to sell MBS as a true reformer in Saudi Arabia and I remember talking to my uh, friends in the intel world and others about this and they just kept shaking their head going yeah don't don't buy that for a second they said look I'm not going to buy anything if you know me by now I don't buy any of this stuff you know uh, you got you got to show me um, and of course MBS has come under a lot of uh criticism, rightfully so, for stuff like the Jamal Khashoggi killing, uh, you know, torture and murder, which was, um, I I mean, obviously complicit in ordering that. Um, There are other other issues. What do you, this is a long-winded way of asking a simple question. What's real in terms of human rights uh, improvement, let's say, in Saudi Arabia, and what isn't? You know, you see some political dissidents and others that have been put in prison and they're let out. I know you have some feedback on that. And you, you have, you've been following some of their cases very closely. Tell me what is exactly real about human rights reform in Saudi, the Saudi kingdom and what is it isn't?
2: Great question. I would even say you could expand it to the last five years, because that's been the question a lot of Saudi watchers have been asking ourselves as we've seen MBS come to the front and make all these moves. What's real? What's cosmetic and what is just going to be rolled back at a later date? Like I was saying earlier, there's no doubt in my mind that these are all part of a calibrated message to the Biden administration from Saudi Arabia, that it's eager to turn the page with the Biden administration. And by the way, I think we have this perception that it's the Democrats or it's the progressives that are really anti-Saudi these days, but... And we're starting to see it within Republicans too. I mean, poor targeting in Yemen, uh, notwithstanding. Yes, you're right. We've got you know we've got a very well-equipped but poorly trained military in Riyadh uh, prosecuting this war. MBS's own unforced errors, as as we like to call them at FDD, have contributed to that loss of standing in both parties. So it wasn't just Khashoggi. It was also the uh, very badly timed oil price war of last. Yeah, April. Uh, I would say that was when I started to notice a more clear bipartisan pushback against Saudi Arabia when MBS directed Aramco to keep the oil uh, to to keep the oil flowing. It was this attempt to. There was like almost a, I think. So game of chicken is the right game theory analogy that he was playing with the russians he wanted the russians to accept the cut that he favored the russians wanted to cut by a lesser margin a smaller margin it turned into this game of chicken and then the um the the companies that were most affected by that were us shale companies so when the us shale patch started to feel this pain we started to see their elected representatives, Republicans and Congress start to take a more significant, harder stance towards Saudi Arabia. And it wasn't just, hey, Saudi, stop doing that. Hey, MBS, listen to us. We saw letters that threatened retaliation. I think there were even two different pieces of legislation introduced that threatened to pull U.S. troops from Saudi Arabia if Saudi Arabia didn't seize this price war. So I think MBS has really um, ceded uh, his his. His terrible standing within both parties equally so that's it talking about what these moves in the last few weeks mean there's been i think some genuine progress uh on the legal and judicial fronts so there was an announcement that saudi Arabia would issue four new laws i think it was um something on uh, it was a penal code update it was a, a family st- a personal status law um commercial transactions and then one other that was going to be included in this judicial reform package and that was widely hailed as a very a positive lasting move it was an attempt to codify codify a legal regime that's often been seen as sort of capricious arbitrary individual judges had wide latitude when it came to their rulings so it wasn't exactly the kind of legal environment that Business and you know firms wanted to operate in that Western businesses wanted to operate in, so clearly that was ge- that was geared towards improving the ease of doing business in Saudi Arabia in order to attract Western capital and foreign businesses as part of Vision 2030, Mohammed bin Salman's flagship economic reform plan, uh, plan to wean the Saudi economy off oil. That was good, I would say. That was like net positive. The human rights front, though, that's where we start to see the Saudi pattern of two steps forward and one step back. So we had uh, three dual US Saudi citizens that were released in the last few weeks. Uh, One of them was a doctor who had his sentence suspended. uh, So he will no longer he was charged and uh, imprisoned, and now he'll no longer have to serve the remainder of his sentence. And then we had two human rights activists, Salah uh, Al Haydar and Badr Al Ibrahim, who were both released. And then we had, of course, I think the biggest uh, release of them all, Lujain uh, Al Hadlul, who was just released last week. I want to say it was last Wednesday. So on the on on the surface, I think there was a lot to celebrate. There, we're seeing these human rights activists that were uh, forcibly imprisoned in different waves. The Lujain's wave started in. Uh, May 2018 and then the other the male activists were imprisoned in April 2019 so it's been sort of waves of detain detention of activists, academics, dissidents, whatnot. But if you dig a little deeper, that's where that two steps forward one step back dynamic emerges. So of the three activists that were released, all three of them will be subject to travel bans. I think will be subject to a travel ban of five years. And then she'll also have to serve a probation sentence of three years. Uh, Dr. Walid Al-Fatehi, one of the dual U.S. Saudi citizens that was released, he's also subject to a travel ban. And then uh, the two activists, Salah al haider and Badr Al-Ibrahim, they were temporarily released on bail. So they'll still have to continue their trials. Um, I think uh, they're, they're still facing charges of terrorism and whatnot. So none of these are the clear, unconditional release and exoneration that these innocent activists deserve. And it's very much a face-saving solution, I think, for Mohammed bin Salman. It's not an admission of guilt. They were um, Lujane, for example, she was charged, I think, with or convicted, rather, with um, working to promote a foreign agenda or something like that and inciting regime change. So it's it's just a band-aid at best. I think if Saudi Arabia genuinely wants to telegraph um, if anybody wants to telegraph a genuine desire to turn the page and win back goodwill from both Democrats and Republicans, then it's going to have to commit to unconditional release and exoneration of not just these activists, but the many more who still remain behind bars, like Rice Spadawi who's been in prison for eight years. And and I most small mercy, he'll no longer have to face the remaining 950 lashes of the 1000 lashes that he was sentenced to after Saudi Arabia abolished flogging last April. Uh, and then Samar Badawi, his sister, who was detained in August, 2018, and hasn't been heard from since. So Saudi Arabia really wants to say, we're ready for a change it's going to have to go beyond face-saving solutions. But that's the problem with Mohammed bin Salman. So many of Saudi Arabia's current crises, PR crises, if one wants to call it that, are of his own making. And I think you see a lot of arguments like, oh, he's just a young kid, you know, he's kind of testing the waters. He'll figure it out eventually, but has he? We've had, I think, Three years, almost coming on four. Like the, the the issues that really started began in the fall of twenty seventeen, I mean, even summer twenty seventeen. That's when you had this spontaneous blockade of Qatar and this announcement on the spur that we were going to Saudi Arabia and three other countries were going to cut relations with Qatar. And then in, in um the fall of 2017 was when you had the roundup of businessmen and royals that were detained in the Ritz Carlton for months. And you know, supposedly billed as an anti corruption. Uh, purge, ex post facto, but still conducted with such vague legality that it gave a lot of investors and businessmen cause for concern and made them hit pause. Then the real pause came after the murder of Khashoggi in 2018. So it's just been one thing after another. And I'm not sure that we'll see this pattern break. I'm starting to think more and more that this is just a facet of who he is, which is extremely concerning because what happens when the old guard when king salman the last remaining check that he possibly faces leaves the scene what happens when mbs takes the throne i am very i'm very nervous i haven't seen anything that suggests that he really wants to moderate or learn from his past mistakes yet
0: i don't think we're getting any saudi tourism dollars uh then based on this podcast so you know i don't
1: i don't think we're going to be doing any uh, generation jihad episodes no or Jeddah or anything like that no, you know, the- which
2: is a shame, too. I wanted to say you know when we went in April two thousand and eighteen, I really want to express this. you could feel a, a sense of change. it was it was palpable. Young Saudis were super excited. They want to be more active participants in their economies. They want to be more active participants regionally and globally. So you had all this potential, and you had all this interest among businesses and Western firms, but it's just been the cost of political risks, and you know, one, on forced error after another that's that's putting us in this situation. Saudi Arabia, I think, ruled out a tourist visa in 2019 or so. So, you know, they have beautiful sites. I mean, they've got um, Nabataean architecture that's better that than Petra. So you've got so much potential here right? And so much scope for opportunities. And so that, to me, is the biggest tragedy of what we've seen in terms of Mohammed bin Salman's display. He is he's mortgaging the future of his own citizens, and he's mortgaging the success of Saudi Arabia. And that's, I mean, it, it's a tragedy. I have no other way of putting it. It's tragic.
0: You know, when you mentioned that certain political prisoners, uh, dissidents, you know, be subject to Travel restrictions, when they're let, let out, I, you know, I was thinking about, and Bill, this is a name that will immediately come to mind when I say it or immediately evoke all sorts of uh, memories about dealing his work in Yemen through the years, is Abdul Majid al-Zindani, the U.S.-designated terrorist. He's somebody who was described as a big-time benefactor for Osama bin Laden originally. There's all sorts of evidence about the how his operations in Yemen are intertwined and have helped al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula through the years. And when you talked about the travel restrictions on those dissidents and, and uh, you know, people that are sort of out of favor with the, the royals, um, you know, Zidane's a guy who's traveled to Saudi Arabia despite travel restrictions placed by the UN during the war in Yemen. So he's somebody who's been welcomed in Saudi Arabia during all that. And that, that's sort of one of those, you know, I guess, double standards you see in these dealings, which is what which draw, which draws right, righteous criticism, I think, um, in all this. You know, One of the things we, we haven't really done a lot on Saudi Arabia on the podcast in particular because it's a, it's a really messy story to get into when it comes to the jihad. You know, the thing, what we talk about most of the time when it comes to Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, for example, the Saudis, I think the evidence is clear that they have helped the US and the UK and others in hunting down senior AQAP leaders. They provide intelligence on AQAP leaders. AQAP complains about it all the time. So, so it's got, it's, I think there's got to be some truth to that, you know, and the Saudis probably have an incredible espionage network that they're they're allowing the U.S. to um, sort of leverage in the counterterrorism campaign. The problem, of course, is how do you weigh that against the human rights impact of the Saudi campaign against the Houthis in Yemen, um, you know, the sort of mishandled war that they have ongoing there that they even want out of, as you said, um, and various other issues like MBS's behavior and all, all these other issues they are all intertwined. It's all a big mess. And you know, when it comes to the jihadi side of things, one of the things that I, I'm sure you've seen this, Bill, we, we talked a lot about the deal between the Iranian regime and al-Qaeda. And one of the things we'll see on Twitter or social media is, hey, how, how come you guys don't talk about the Saudi, Saudis and al-Qaeda? Well, it's a little bit of a different story there. there. There is absolutely an extremist overlap. Part of the Saudi kingdom does, you know, export extremism, of course, and has done that for years. I haven't gotten a good gauge on that recently where they are on that. I was going to ask you about that as one final question for me. Um, but, you know, the thing is that Al-Qaeda has, in fact, had the Saudi royals in their crosshairs since before 9-11. And, and after, Tom know? Muhammad
1: and, uh bin Nayef, right? Well, I, was the, what I was just going to say, yeah. Abdul Siri yeah. tried to kill one of the him big. with a bomb packed up his rectum. I well, mean, even,
0: before, even before that, right after 9-11, people forget that the Al-Qaeda tried to launch an insurgency in Saudi. You know, Al-Qaeda tried to topple them and it led to a... a, a a major conflict inside Saudi Arabia. By the way, you haven't seen that conflict inside Iran. The Al-Qaeda hasn't done the same thing uh, against the Iranian government, you know. And, and so, you know, one of the disingenuous things I see in all this is, you know, we're, we don't carry water for the Saudis or for anybody else on this podcast, obviously. But you have, you know, a lot of times these stories are more complicated than people realize. You know, there's this ignorance that says, well, you know, most of the hijackers were Saudi from 9-11 and therefore, you know, Saudi equals Al-Qaeda. And it's a lot more complicated than that. There's no doubt that Al-Qaeda has networks in Saudi Arabia. There's no doubt that certain people and sort of Saudi officialdom have been complicit in this in various ways. I'm critical of all that, and I want uh, sunshine on all of that. But it is a very difficult story. It's not the same thing as the other stories that we we look at, because al-Qaeda, in fact, has been opposed to Saudi royals uh, since the 1990s. So um, there is that part of the story. I was just curious if you have any insight at all into uh, when we talk about Saudi reforms, Where they are in terms of exporting extremist ideology. I know there have been some reforms when it comes to the Saudi international aid organizations, which in the past had been basically fronts for jihadism or extremism of one form or another. I've seen rumblings, I've seen reports that they've um, evolved, that they in some cases have actually Taken meaningful reforms. I just wonder if you had any sort of insight into that at all.
2: Yeah, no, I'm glad you brought this up because uh, just last week, actually, there was a new report saying Saudi Arabia's textbooks um, have actually been revised and they address a lot of longstanding US concerns, which is, it's all sort of part and parcel of this package, right? Like, what is Saudi Arabia's role under Mohammed bin Salman? And his vanguard on the exportation of wahhabism and also the the reign to which wahhabism is given domestically so textbook reform in particular the exportation of these hate-filled textbooks to other areas where it has then seeded radicalization and spurred calls for jihad that's been a long-standing u.s concern and
0: uh, by the way, real, real quick on that, one of our co- former colleagues, David Weinberg, who's at the ADL now, the Anti-De- Anti-Defamation League, has done a lot of reporting on that. He did reporting in a Longmore Journal about that actually years ago. Documenting what was in the Saudi textbooks, so uh, we're gonna have to have him on the podcast to talk about what's in the textbooks too. That, that's
1: interesting. you brought Tom, that you up. Tom, you have to stop reading my mind. I was gonna tell you after this podcast that reminded me we gotta get David Weinberg on. It's we're gonna have Varshan again things. too oh, because course, it's fantastic. It's
0: fantastic listening to her. I'm just sitting back letting her letting her go. But go ahead. I'm sorry I cut you off. Go ahead. You were you were talking. About-
2: completely concur. Now, David Weinberg is one of the, if not the best, uh, authority on Saudi textbook reform. And and since I followed in his rather large shoes by taking over for him at FDD, I've learned a lot from his work on this over the last few years. And as David himself was um, was saying that what they've done recently in terms of excising some hate speech, things like uh, no longer, ad- I think, advocating for the death penalty for or, ad- or capital punishment for homosexual relations, apostasy, sorcery, uh, getting rid of some, anti-Semitic passages. David himself was praising all these, which is what made me think, okay, this is a serious move then by the Saudis, the new revisions they've done to their textbook reform curriculum. And then if you even go back to this would have I think been 2015, perhaps 2014, and I'm getting my years mixed up, but there was that landmark decree uh that stripped the CPVPV, the Committee for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice, also known as the, the Mutawa or the Religious Police, uh, from it's a Powers to arrest people. I mean, they were a terror. They were a force for terror going around, patrolling Saudi streets. And I mean, one of their more, more their more, uh, I think, horrific um, examples in their history was when they let a bunch of schoolgirls that kind of just burned to death uh, because uh, they were considered to be improperly bailed. so they were not allowed to be to be rescued. This was a scary. Horrific institution for many Saudis. All those young Saudis who desire a new way of life. So I think curbing them and getting rid of their powers to arrest people—that was a huge move. And then you also saw clerics that were given a more harsh line and told to walk back some of their incendiary comments. You had this sort of greater oversight, state oversight of what the clerics were saying. I think those are all. Um, things that we ought to praise and things that we ought to want more of from Saudi Arabia. Of course, the flip side to that is, again, this, this whole two steps forward, one step back thing, right, with MBS's uh, uh, mercurial tendencies. I hear that word uh, ascribed to him quite a bit in the same time frame as you saw these clerics, sort of publicly walk back their statements. And I think some of them, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but he even issued like a widespread apology for the years of the Sahwa, and he said, we were wrong. We were wrong to do what we did. We were wrong to try to impose all of these things on the public square. Around the same time that this happened, you also had them start to be arrested. So one of them, one of them, clerics who was part of the Sahwa movement and then has retracted his involvement with it and apologized for it. So, Oda, he faces the death penalty and he's still, you know, detained and having whatever pipeline of justice, quote unquote, um, going through that in Saudi Arabia. So, again, you see this kind of back and forth dynamics. I think that, to me, this is kind of the, the failure, actually, of the Trump administration. I think President Trump had this incredible opportunity to Resets U.S. Saudi ties. And it's off. It's talked about like a pipe dream. I kind of feel like every president comes to power is like, we're going to set U.S. Saudi ties. And it's really difficult to do so because of the leverage Saudi Arabia continues to have on international markets and energy markets and counterterrorism cooperation. You know, they may be a bad actor, but we have to work with them for our own security. But I think President Trump actually had the best chance out of all past presidents in recent memory, at least you had this new leader who had clearly telegraphed a desire for change and reform. And it was not just words. He was making all these moves that, at the time, people were even afraid. What does this mean for an internal challenge to MBS? He's treading on so many toes and clipping so many people's wings, people that were in position of power. What does this mean for him? So you had a leader, I think, that would have benefited. I'm not sure if he would have welcomed, but he would have benefited a more uh, robust, institutionalized, form of U.S. society relationship that prioritized the promotion of values that really encouraged all of the reforms he was making, encouraged him to make more, but then also served to the best of its ability as a guardrail and a, and a check against some of his more destabilizing tendencies. I think that's where the Trump administration had its worst foreign policy loss, for my portfolio at least, was um, the way they gave MBS carte blanche for so much of of his unforced errors, the way they were willing to sweep some of his ill behavior under the rug in return for this transactional approach of balance energy markets when we feel like it, uh, support the anti-Iran coalition when we ask you to, buy our weapons when we ask you to, but it really ignored a lot of the broader values that could have served as a way to mold the young royal. I mean, I may be idealistic, um, in overstating any U.S. leverage we had on molding MBS, and probably being way too idealistic on any any of MBS's own desire or willingness to be molded. So definitely take that the grain of salt. But in terms of exportation of jihadism, cracking down on internal jihadism, cracking down on you know the negative tendencies, the relics of the Wahhabist state that remain, MBS has taken a lot of positive steps, and I think there was scope to have. Uh, use the US saudi relationship to get him to do a lot more on that front. And I think that's a missed opportunity.
1: Well, that's it for me. Billy, you have any other questions for Varsha before we let her no, go? I think that's it. I mean, I have a lot of questions, but I think we should save it for the next step.
0: Yeah, Varsha, we've really appreciate you coming on the podcast this week to talk to our audience, to give them a different perspective on things. We definitely want to have you back. We've been, just so our listeners know again, we've been here with Varsha Cotevayor our colleague at FDD. You can tell she's brilliant. She's talking about all these uh, topics off the top of her head. We had absolutely no script for this week because I was being lazy, so I didn't submit any questions to her or anything, so she just had to take our our questions uh, on the fly. That's uh, Thank you for doing that, Varsha.
2: Not at all. Thank you for having me. This has been so much fun, and it's so great to just be able to nerd out uh, and chat with you guys about all things Saudi and you Gulf geopolitics. So thank you again for letting me go on and on about some of my favorite topics under the sun, especially Morocco.
1: Varsha, I, I got uh, listeners. Uh, we, I had an opportunity to spend what was about 10 days with Varsha and several other FDD colleagues on a trip to India a couple of years back. And so I was supremely confident that you uh, would be able to handle our off-the-cuff comments. And A real pleasure to, to see you again. I mean, even if it is you, um, and we look forward to having you back on it, really just a refreshing conversation, something very different um, and, and a lot of positivity, which I, I think this podcast can really use. Thank you, Varsha.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, you're definitely a hell of a lot more optimistic
0: than we are. That's uh, good to see. If we ever could see, see you on Zoom, you're making us smile a lot more than we usually, you know, <laughs> it's usually just Bill and me complaining about different things. So. Especially Tom's anyway. especially. Yeah, well, suck it up. Anyway, so, Varsha, thanks again. We're going to have you on again soon, hopefully, to talk about different issues, stuff that's in your wheelhouse. Maybe it's a little expands our portfolio on the podcast. Thank you to our listeners for tuning into this week's episode of Generation Jihad. Please do subscribe to the show. As a reminder, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And we will see you, hopefully, next week.